So I'm happy to be here in case some of you don't know me. My name is Carol Wilson. I'm happy to see you all here. So tonight, I want to talk about, basically about investigating anatta. And it looks like it's going to end up being a two-part talk, or else a really, really long. So I'll make it two parts. And to the best of my understanding, whatever the Buddha taught when he taught, he wasn't teaching in order to have people acquire another philosophical concept. He wasn't teaching like a body of knowledge that he wanted people to learn. But as he said over and over, you know, he's just teaching what we need to know to free our hearts and minds from suffering. And so that's true also, as with everything, in his teaching about anatta, sense of no self. And I say that because so often this particular characteristic of existence, the three characteristics together with anicca, impermanence, dukkha, suffering, unsatisfactoriness, uh, anatta, no self, through just the, the way that all conditioned phenomenal existence is. It's just how it is. And of those three, often anatta is the one that um, makes people crazy. A little bit. I don't mean literally crazy. We're already crazy. If we understood anatta, we'd be more sane. But thinking about it, trying to figure it out, trying to understand it, basically in a philosophical way, that's how we tend to approach stuff, that makes us crazy. And that's not uh, how I want to talk about it tonight. I'd like to just mm, investigate really anatta or more the feeling of the sense of self in a very concrete way, using our practice in that way. The lights are kind of reflecting in a way that's hard hard for me to see. So the other thing people often tend to do in terms of anatta, if they're not just trying to think, think their way through it and get crazy, is to, and so many people say this in different ways, they're waiting in their practice or measuring their idea of if their practice has any benefit by waiting for some big anatta flash, after which everything's changed, no more sense of self, life is copacetic, and there's no more problems. I don't know if that relates to anybody here, but we do. And and the other way people relate to that is, but that could never happen to me. That's somewhere else down the road. And all of this is really holding the idea of anatta as some state other than here, something to be achieved that isn't already true, and that's just not the case. As with so much of what the Buddha's teachings reveal, it's simply a matter of recognizing our experience more accurately and then responding to that more accurate recognition in a way, just in the obvious way that makes sense. We stop suffering so much. So rather than waiting around, follow the breath, in, out, in, out, notice the sensations, okay, okay, but when's anatta going to happen? Rather than practicing like that, it's more like recognizing when sense of self is present recognizing when it's absent. And just personally, what I've experienced in, in my own life is not that there was some big moment after which I got anatta and before which I didn't, but it's more the image that Suzuki Roshi gives of if you go out in a rainstorm and you get totally drenched, you know it. It's not like that. It's more like walking in a fog. And you're walking in a fog, and you don't realize you're getting wet. But when you come inside, you're completely soaked through the bone. But you couldn't point to the moment where that happened. So that's another way of looking at it. So what keeps us from recognizing just the way things are, just the facts? Ramana Maharshi said, wrote once, that the idea of self is like a ghost which is caused by the play of shadows. 
If you look closely, the ghost vanishes. The ghost was never there. So also with the sense of self. So long as one does not look closely at it, it continues to give trouble. But when one looks for it, it is found not to exist. So I think with our practice, I know, with our practice, with our mindfulness, with the wisdom, satipanya, just mindfulness wisdom at the point of contact, just noticing what's arising, free of conception, we have the tools in any moment, in any given moment, to look more accurately, to recognize more accurately, to really get interested in what am I calling me in any particular moment, if there is a sense of me or mine, or if there's not. There's one sutta where someone asked the Buddha, what is it that liberated ones know? You know, how would you sum it up? I mean, lots of different ways. But in this particular sutta, he says that having heard that nothing is worth clinging to, he directly knows everything. Having heard that nothing is worth clinging to, he fully understands everything. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, in his commentary on this, says, what he does not cling to any formation by way of craving and views. He does not become agitated because of craving and thus personally realizes nibbana through the extinguishing of all kilesa, of all torments of mind, of all defilements. Does not cling by way of craving and views. Realizes that nothing is worth clinging to. So yes, we're back to the familiar pith teaching, the core of pretty much, if you had to boil the Buddha's teaching down into one little line, that would be it. Nothing is worth clinging to. But rather than going into, oh, no, not again, I know I can't give up clinging, what we can do, what I'm proposing, the way I want to talk about it tonight, is rather explore in our own experience the nature of clinging, and in particular, the clinging that is um, manifesting in any particular moment as a sense of me or mine. Non-clinging, really. Supreme truth, liberation through non-clinging. That's really at the heart of whatever form of practice we're doing. If it's concentration or shamatha practice, it's non-clinging, all the Brahma-viharas, wisdom practice, mindfulness practice. Non-clinging is essential. I mean, nothing works when we're clinging. All the practices open up by themselves when the heart and mind is not agitated through clinging. And I'm sure by this time everybody knows from your own experience various ways that clinging is suffering. And it's pretty clear in some way. You know, I mean, we can kind of get it that holding on to particular objects or particular experiences that are going to change causes suffering. I mean, it doesn't mean we don't still do it. But we do kind of have the basic understanding. That's not really rocket science. Although we still do it, and that's the interesting thing. But when, on a more subtle level, the clinging that perhaps is, is more difficult to see through, and in many cases, in my experience, is um, it's so familiar. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes not, but it's so familiar that is kind of difficult to recognize is the clinging to aspects of experience that create the sense of self, basically to, to form, to mind and form, nama rupa, to the body, to ideas, to perceptions, to thoughts, to emotions, to formations, to views, ideas about ourselves. A lot of these things we don't even recognize are arising, never mind recognize that we're clinging to them. 
the basic habits of our mind that are based in the inaccurate understanding, the inaccurate recognition of our mind and body. So that's, and tonight I want to give more of an overview and just give some different, point to some different ways we can explore when we're clinging in that way. So the first thing really is just to get interested, not afraid of, not aversive to, but interested whenever we notice the feeling of me and mine, of I, is here. Just to meet it as another rising experience, literally the same as you'd notice a sound or you'd notice any other thought. So we need to recognize when it's here, but also recognize, and this is something that Ajahn Buddhadasa, you know, he, he was the Thai forest uh, monk, very famous in Thailand. Um, uh, he died, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. He um, talks about the state, that's not a state, that the nature of mind, when it's not agitated by clinging, is not distracted by being caught up in reactions to any particular experience, that emptiness of self, he, it's translated as voidness in English by his translator. I don't like that so much. But the nature of our heart and mind is naturally empty of self, is naturally pure, clear, is naturally peaceful. This isn't some state that we're striving to achieve where we finally have dug up and annihilated all sense of self and we can finally rest at ease. He, he points out, Buddhadasa, over and over that along with recognizing when we're caught up, when there's this sense of me, when there's this sense of struggle or agitation or conflict, it's equally maybe more valuable and important to recognize the nature of heart and mind when this is not present. <clears throat> that emptiness of self, this kind of natural awareness, peaceful quality, open, luminous quality, freedom from self, is, in his words, um, truly normal and natural. Not a state we create when we get to some high level, It's a truly and normal and natural way that we are. It's really how things are. And so when we can recognize this, recognize when I feel like meing and myeing, recognize when that's not there. He talks about, then Buddhadasa talks about generating uh, a contentment with voidness, generating a contentment with no sense of self, with no sense of me or mine. And as I go on, maybe I can, hopefully, some of what I say will help point to why it may not be that easy or natural to really have a contentment with voidness. As much as we resist our sense of self, we're back to clinging. We really, in some ways, like it, cling to it. But just a a simple example of how we can really see how the sense of me, being there or not, is just a trick of perception. It's not about changing the circumstances. Just very simple. When I was walking home this morning and the wind was blowing and it was really cold. I don't like the cold. My body doesn't like the cold. So I was walking and the wind was blowing and I was feeling my body contracting and shivering and then the thought coming in, oh, it's too cold, I don't like it, I've got to walk fast, subtle resistance, sense of me walking fast, needing to get home to where it was warm. Now, this isn't like some huge, you know, drama suffering, just very mild, everyday kind of experience, but definitely a sense of me clinging to wanting it to be different, clinging to the sense of hurrying home. But then it can just shift like that from no clinging and no resistance, but just there's walking, the movement, there's the sense of coolness, there's the sense of sharpness, there's the sense of constriction. And that's it. 
There's no resistance, no clinging. There's nothing is changed about the situation. But it's just coldness, sensations, walking, breeze. That's it. In that moment, the clinging to wanting experience different, the clinging or the resisting, which is really just clinging turned around, resisting the sensations creates the sense of me. Looking at that, it drops away. The actual situation is no different. The sense of self in that moment just isn't there, and there's no problem. It's still just as cold. My body still reacts uncomfortably to cold. I didn't get home any quicker. It just doesn't matter. It's just not a problem. You can see that's not a big deal. I know, I know, just as Ajahn Buddhadas has said, that everybody has many, many moments like that through the day. Really noticing, not like, oh yes, I'm having an experience of anatta, because then it's gone, you're back, you're having an experience. But just the simplicity of, oh, just this, just this. It's like this. That's the beauty of our mindfulness practice. Buddha Dasa likes to use the, the terms in the Pali language, ahankara and mahamamankara, which translate as I-ing and my-ing. You non-English first language speakers, does that make sense? I-ing and my-ing is making it a verb rather than a subject which is sort of how it is. Something's being created in the morning, in the moment. And when eyeing comes up, myeing comes up, it feels really real, doesn't it? Because it feels as though, unexamined, at least to me, unexamined, it feels as though it's always there, doesn't it? I mean, I am always here. Maybe not my, but I am always here. It's so familiar, and the more I try to analyze it, the more I try to think about it, the stronger it gets, doesn't it? Because I'm thinking about it, and it just gets into this big knot. The way it feels, this is from uh, Zigar Kangchul Rinpoche. I like this a lot. He's talking about a Tibetan word, Shenpa, which uh, he says is usually meant as the raw experience of the suffering of ego clinging. He says uh, it's generally translated as attachment, but that's not sufficient. Shenpa is a pervasive discomfort, the experience of I, me, and mine, all the wants, needs, aversions, hopes, and fears that come out of that. The discomfort of Shenpa can be vague and subtle, like having a stone in your shoe or a sour note that plays throughout the day. I love that. Just something's a little off and it just bugs you. Or when the ego is strongly challenged, Shenpa can be the painful charge of the negative emotions. By seeing and accepting the mechanisms of Shenpa and self-importance, they no longer have a hold on us. That's exactly what Buddha Das is saying. Simply by seeing, understanding, and accepting how this sense of Shenpa, of self, is created, it no longer has a hold on us. The main attitude on the path to peace is to accept whatever our experience brings. Let's accept it and also recognize accurately. So that's what the invitation really is to do with our satipanya, with our mindfulness wisdom, is to get interested to notice the presence of eyeing and myeing, whether just when it begins or however long it's been there, it doesn't matter. Notice it and then really get interested, bring investigative wisdom, dhamma-vichaya, in to really explore, not thinking about, but by bringing our attention to the actual experience in that moment that feels like me or mine. I mean, I can feel personally, and it's different each time, 
but a sense of a kind of a contraction, that clinging, that holding on to something. That's already saying too much, holding on to something. But just a little sense of, mm, it shrinks, it limits things. But I can feel it. So the first thing, when we start to explore, so this, again, this is Buddha Dasa, that we see that the sense of self is merely a condition that arises when there's grasping and clinging in the mind. That's all. This big, seemingly huge, endless monolith we spend all our practice trying to chip away and chip away and dynamite and fight with and hate ourselves and all of that. And it's just a momentary condition that arises when there's grasping and clinging in the mind. So that gives us a little hint about how often grasping or clinging arises in our experience. Or my experience, I speak for you guys. I mean, I really get it, why it's kind of the centerpiece, non-clinging is the centerpiece of liberation. Merely a condition that arises and passes. Born out of contact with a sense object, with an experience, with a mental object... So I'll give this, I use this story all the time because it's so simple, but it really, it, it works. Notice the birth of self. It can be really clear. It's great on retreat. You have so much time to explore this because when, when things aren't so busy, when all the activities are kind of stripped away, you can notice in relationship to little things the birth of self, and the self feels just as big. It doesn't matter if it's born in relation to a little thing. So this this story I always use, once I was on retreat over at the retreat center, long retreat, and I was was pretty quiet. Things were just flowing. I mean, not always, but, you know, it was a relatively what we call misleadingly a good time in practice. I was noticing things. I liked how it was going. Not a lot of suffering. And... I noticed this one time, we, over there you walk into the dining room and there's a big shelf with all the mugs and the cups and stuff and the dishes. And at this time, we used to have many, many different kind of mugs. Now they have more similar, but at that time they were, they were all different, just what people had left. And I just go, I take a mug, I take my dishes, I'd eat, I'd go. And one time way into the retreat, I got a mug, I was getting my tea, and as I sat down, I started, wow. This mug is really the perfect mug. The good color, it fits my hand, it feels good on my mouth. And I, right in that moment, there is, I like this mug. I want this mug. I want this mug again. And it was so clear in that moment, the birth of me, me me and my mug. It was very clear. So I sat there, and instead of just being present with the tea, should I save it? We're not supposed to save it. Should I take it back to my room? We're not supposed to take No one will know, and who cares anyway? But no, then every time I wanted tea, I'd have to go back to my room and then come back here, and at the rate I'm walking, that would take half the day, so forget it. So then I put the mug back. I was like, oh, pff, death of me and my mug. And it was just free and easy and fine. Incredibly complicated. That sense of self made everything complicated. It, it restricts what had been open, easy, just as it is, gets quite constricted, limited. The mind, the consciousness gets limited. Everything gets complicated. You can feel in that moment the sense of grasping, almost like an inner contraction. You can feel that sense of me and then all the complications, the papancha that ensues from it. Put it down, went away. It was gone. But, I came back the next day, and I looked for it. So already, there was complication. And I found it, and I took it. And I went, and I went through the whole thing again, even more. And at that point, the suffering of it, I know this sounds ridiculous, like the suffering of liking a mug, but you know, when your mind's quiet, you can really see it. This is ridiculous. All this planning, all this agitation, all this wanting, and I put it down, and that was it. You know, it was over. If only it could always be that easy. But this is exactly dependent origination. This is the birth and death of meing and myeing that happens for each of us hundreds of times in a day. 
It's a real blessing to notice the birth and notice the death. What we tend to do is we notice the me in my mug. We don't notice the death of it. We notice the, the me that doesn't like the complication. Then we notice the me that's putting it back. Then we notice the me that's wanting the next thing. And we forget to notice the times when there's no meing and mying in between. Really important to notice the birth and death. They say that's the dependent origination. This is from the Buddha talking about this middle part, the continuation of the round of the dependent origination. On seeing a form with the eye, like the mug, he lusts after it if it's pleasing or dislikes it if it's unpleasing. He abides with mindfulness of the body unestablished, with a limited mind. And that's exactly how it feels. As soon as there's that clinging to something, the me and my arising, the mind feels limited, the heart feels limited. He delights, and engaged as he is, whatever feeling he feels, he delights in that feeling, welcomes it, and remains holding to it. As he does so, delight arises in him. Now delight in feeling is clinging. With his clinging as condition, being comes to be. With being as condition, birth. With birth as condition, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. So that's, you know, just talking about one moment of contact in this moment of life. That lusting after, that sense of me arising, the constriction of mind, and the whole mass of suffering. So notice when that arises. Notice when it dies. Notice the sense of, it's not like some huge light going off. It's just this sense of limitlessness again, of space, of ease, of peace. The sense of self fades and dies. Anatta is truly normal and natural when there's no grasping or clinging in the mind. It's just the way things are. So I want to just give, talk about a, a few areas, and I won't by any means cover all of them tonight, but just a few of the, uh, first, the, the more grosser areas of our Nama Rupa experience, of our mind and body experience, that so easily there's clinging to that creates a strong sense of meing and mying, and that we so often overlook or don't recognize the clinging. I mean, with the mug, I use that because that's a simple, obvious example. Of course, it's recognizable. I didn't think the mug was me, right? It was the me who wanted it. But still, there's clinging to much more uh, from experience that really seems so like me. This is really where the sense of self is. Well, of course, this is me. I'm not clinging to it. It is me, right? That's where our satipanya, our mindfulness wisdom, comes in so helpful, our mindfulness practice. So the first, of course, the most obvious, and it's in some ways the easiest to to see through, too, is uh, clinging, grasping that arises in relationship to sense contact with, with rupa, with our body, with sense physical experience. And uh, here, what I found really, really helpful, it's nothing new, it's mindfulness. It's that, that willingness, that ability to meet with our attention the bare sensory experience, to see and tell the difference, to recognize accurately the sense experience without confusing it with the conceptual overlay. It's what starts to help us see when there's clinging. So just give simple examples. When you're sitting, when you're walking, but just when you're sitting, and there's that pain. We talk about this all the time. The difference between noticing 
burning sensation, and the overlay, my back is hurting, or I've hurt my back, or I need to do X, Y, and Z. Just sensing. Even more, how often, a little more subtle, is when there's a, a, a sense contact, say there's itching, say there's a lightness, a, a pleasant physical feeling. And the attention just connects, notices lightness. But do you notice how so often there's a visual overlay, just a, a, a visual image of the body or that part of the body, which is fine. If we just recognize this is seeing and this is feeling, burning or tickling, that's no problem. But when we don't recognize so often in that seeing, we don't even recognize the seeing, and there can be like a subtle holding to that as the image, the description of my body. Do you see what I mean? So like I I notice when I'm sitting, there can be periods where every single moment there's a lot of physical sensations, and there's just a noticing of it. I don't have to be noting, but just noticing, and you know, it's tightness or burning or tingling and just there. But with each one, there's a picture of my knee, there's a picture of my back, there's a picture of my whole body, there's a picture of my face noticing. And if I don't recognize that image, there can be this subtle sense of clinging, oh, that's me. It just feels like me. I'm not saying this is true for anybody else. It's just an example. Look and see. Or I'm hungry. It's the same as when I was walking in the wind today. The difference between sensations, bubbling, sounds, gurgling, you know, a feeling of discomfort, it's just that. I'm hungry. A thought. Just a thought. But clinging to the thought or holding to the sensation is immediately a sense of me. And then when you notice the sense of me, turn your attention onto that. Not fight it or try and think about it, but just notice that's the next arising experience. Bubbling, gurgling, oh, I'm so hungry. Sense of me. Feels like this. Just notice how it comes and goes. Notice how when you're just breathing and there's just sensations of coolness, you can't even say that's a body. Never mind my body. You know, at times there's absolutely no form. There's just sensations. And if you're, you're sitting there and there's sensation, and it's, as far as your actual experience, it's sensation arising in space. Can we just notice that? Let it be. Or notice if right on top of it comes a sense of, no, my body. And then just notice that. Get a sense of what I mean. Just explore. Just explore this. Um, I don't want to say a lot more about body because we really pay a lot of attention, of attention to that. But I'm talking about the actual experience, not the idea of the body. The idea of the body, of course, we're much more likely to cling to. But that's actually not the physical. That's an idea. That's mental. That's sankara. Another aspect is Vedana, the feeling tone. You know, you all know what that is, right? The pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling tone. Just it's a mental experience, rather subtle often, that arises with every sense contact. So every sound, each of us will experience a particular sound as pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, every thought, every physical sensation. And obviously, as we we talk about it, because so often it's not the thing we pay attention to, it's often not the predominant experience, but it's very easy for a, a clinging to arise, an identification to arise, so that we experience, say, the pleasant feeling as being either me or mine, and not recognizing that that little clinging is going on. And we can get into quite a little world of identification and complexity based on this clinging to pleasant or unpleasant vedna. Yes, we cling to unpleasant too. 
and not recognizing that. It's very easy to overlook. For example, in this sitting, and I just use sitting as examples because that's what we're doing, something's happening, finally it's going right. Either the breath is smooth and the mind isn't wandering as much as it was before, or that's if you're someone who thinks what should be happening is that you should be with the breath and it should be smooth. The person next to you thinks that what should be happening is open awareness and you're not even really noticing the breath, but the mind is just connecting with each arising experience and there's no hesitation and there's no wavering and it's really clear and it's really penetrating and that's what they think should be happening. Someone else thinks something else should be happening. See, I'm just saying this so that you know there isn't one thing that's supposed to be happening. Our thinking that there is is the problem. But anyway... It's finally going the way you think it's supposed to be. So take smooth breath, nice, peaceful, really noticing it, being there with it. The mind isn't wandering. And you even think, I know this is going to change. I know this is going to change, and I'm not attached to this breath. You know, I know it's going to change. And, of course, it does change. And you really thought you weren't attached to that sensation. So why are you so totally bummed out when it changes? Why, you know? And there's lots of different things. But one thing that can happen is that we weren't clinging. We could see we were clinging to the breath, but we were completely overlooking the pleasant feeling and totally clinging to the pleasant feeling. That contraction of me around that pleasantness uh, not even the thought is finally going right prior to that. Ah, this is, this is it. Ah, this is so nice. I remember one time I was on retreat, and I don't even know what was happening, but something in the walking that I thought was really good, and I liked it and whatever. And uh, My teacher, I think it was Sharon at the time, said, okay, you have to note pleasant. That's all she said. I went. I mean, I knew what that. I went back and had a total little minor temper tantrum because I knew that as soon as I consciously noticed the pleasant, the sense of selfing around it would not keep on being created. Which you'd think I would like that, but we're attached to that. We, in, in some way, the sense of self, the clinging, whether it's to the pleasant or whatever, is so comfortable and familiar that even though we think we want to be free from it, given the choice, and we're given the choice millions of times in a day, given the choice, we often go, I want to cling to the pleasant. Don't tell me to notice the pleasant. I'm going I'm to walk, and I'm going to note, 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 but I'm going to overlook pleasant, because if I do that, the gratification of me having pleasant goes away. What goes away? Just that sense of me. That's all that goes away. It's really pathetic. It is. How many millions of times have I experienced the ease of, ah, death of the self? And how many more millions of times? Yeah, but not yet. Let's just enjoy this a little bit. So... Just noticing if something is pleasant or unpleasant, if there's that sense of mine or me around it. And just have a kind of an eye out to explore, as Choki Nima says, really watch the fickleness of the mind, especially in terms of Vedna. Notice in our mind how easily it's influenced just by a pleasant or an unpleasant sight, thought, sound, anything, the mind is so fickle, we just have a pleasant sight and it's influenced into an immediate mood. And then the whole story that comes from it, right? Then there's an unpleasant sound. The mind goes off into a whole other mood, a whole other story. If we just notice that series of events, rather than jumping on each one as, yes, this is me, yes, this is mine, just notice. It's amazing. It's amazing how far the mind goes, how fast, based on how little. And if you can just kind of get interested in watching that, without hating it, without fearing it, without being afraid to see it, 
oh yeah, look at that knee arising so strong about the noise that person is making in this sacred hall. Wow, that's amazing. And in that moment of just getting interested, wow, that's amazing. In a way, that's a moment of death of that sense of self because the energy has moved from the clinging to I like, I don't like, the pleasant, the unpleasant, to simple awareness. Wow, it's like that. In that moment, that's a death of self. And it's just, I just like to call it like a Tai Chi move. You don't actually have to do anything other than withdraw the clinging, the all the identification from whatever's happening, say the pleasant, liking the pleasant, holding to the pleasant. To, oh, holding to the pleasant feels like this. We don't have to get rid of anything. We're not here to destroy the ego. We don't have to be afraid of experiencing a really strong sense of meing and myeing. It's just a momentary arising experience, however subtle, however strong. And that freedom from it is just always right here. Ah, meing feels like this. In that moment, that meing has died. Nothing lasts more than an instant anyway. When we're paying attention, we'll see that. We'll see that. We can't not see it because that's how it is. We just, in a way, need to trust that more in our experience. You know, if you feel like you have to set up some kind of amazing conditions in order to create the state of non-self, well, that gets beyond us and way out in the future. But if you really can have the, it's not a faith, it's just knowing that it's already how it is. There is no steady state you or me. There isn't one. So if you recognize that, your world isn't going to fall apart because it's already like that. That's what's so amazing to me, just to me. Okay, another huge area, and I'll talk a little bit about it, but I don't want to go into too much, is um, emotions. I find emotions um, in some ways one of the most tenacious aspects of uh, mental experience, tenacious in terms of really feeling like the emotion is me, you know? Uh, So often we think the presence of the particular difficult emotions are the barrier to peace, and the presence of the beautiful emotions when we're clinging to them can feel like the barrier to peace, but of course it's not. It doesn't even mean the emotions have to go away. The sense of real suffering from them is this identifying with clinging to them, thinking they are me or mine, either one. So for each of us, I think we each have certain emotions that feel, I was saying to someone today, I forget what words we were using, they feel more like they're really me. Like, for instance, I can have certain emotions that come, and I'll really recognize them. Disappointment feels like this. I can notice it. I don't go too far down the road. I know it comes. I know it goes. For many people, the, the wholesome emotions are like this. They're ones that they easily see are not who they are. In fact, often to the point that they don't even reckon, oh, yeah, well, that's happiness. That's not me. That's going to go. You, know, you don't give it any weight. But the other ones, whatever they are for you, often they're um, self-hatred or feelings of loneliness or the judging voice or feelings of worthlessness or for some people a kind of deep sadness, loneliness, whatever it might be for you. And it can be different for each of us. There are certain ones that when they come in, they're often not even recognized at first because This is really the core manifestation of who I am. And even though it seems like it just arose in this moment, I know that I just haven't noticed it 
because it's been there all along, but I've been being distracted by feeling the breath and noticing this other stuff. But now, here it is, self-hatred. I'm home, you know? (laughs) This is really who I am. And we wouldn't say that we were attached to it. Oh, no, we're not, not attached to this. I hate it, for God's sake. I'm practicing so it'll go away. But in the moments of its arising, there's this, this is really like a cling to, this is me, me and mying, my self-hatred. I'm this loathsome worm, whatever your particular way of saying it is. And the first thing is, this is really one of the aspects of what's called Sakaya Ditti, which is like personality or identity view. Really, this clinging to any particular mental formation, sankara emotion, as me or mine. So first, just start noticing which ones, which particular emotions creep in under your radar, you know? And then... You might notice the sense of me around them, the clinging. But also, even if you don't notice that, do notice when that emotion goes away. You might notice, not notice the moment it leaves, but notice when it's gone. Just like I was saying, noticing when there's no sense of self. Notice when these so-called core personality emotions are gone. And really notice that they're gone. If your mind says stuff like, well, I'm just not noticing it, it's not really gone because I know it's who I am. Just notice stuff like that. When it's not there, it's really not there. When it comes back, it really comes back. That's okay. But notice how emotions then lead to thoughts like, oh, sadness, this is who I am. This is what my life is all about. And then, of course, the thoughts just carry on, carry on, carry on and get so complex. And I think I'll talk more about thoughts the next time. But there's the resistance or the suffering from resisting the emotion itself. And there's also the kind of subtle clinging contraction around it. This is me. This is mine. Notice that. Notice the difference, to use Ajahn Sumedho's language, the difference between take sadness and my sadness, I'm so sad. This is really, you know, the depths of despair. How can I keep going? Whatever your story is. The difference between my sadness and sadness is like this. Feeling it just as fully, perhaps even more fully. Oh, sadness is like this. Despair is like this. Loathing is like this. Joy is like this. The difference when there's the meing and myeing and when there's just the emotion as it is received in awareness. This is really a huge difference. You see, we don't have to even fix our personality. We don't have to, with any of the emotions, analyze them. We don't have to get lost in the story about me, and we don't have to push away the story of me. We just notice it. Oh, sadness is like this. The thoughts that arise that make the sadness stronger are those thoughts. How can I feed the sadness? How can I feed identifying with it? Just keep on going into those thoughts. Oh, yeah, and another thing. Oh, yeah, and another thing feeds the sadness, feeds the anger, feeds whatever it is. Tuning back to the awareness, oh, the sadness is like this. Oh, those thoughts come and go. Sadness is like this, feeds the awareness, not the sadness. And we can flip back and forth, back and forth in every moment. And that's okay. It can be fascinating to do that back and forth where you're really feeling the meanness of a diff- the meanness, the I-ness of a difficult emotion. And it's just pah, unbearable. And the next moment is, oh, it's like this. I was sitting, I think it was in Burma a few years ago, 
has really, really one of the more emotionally difficult retreats I've done in years and years. For some reason, just this really intense despair and dukkha-filled emotions would come up. And I was, I was pretty mindful. I was really watching it. I would notice what I would notice an image come. I would notice the thought. I would notice the emotion start. I was really aware of the whole train, but each time it came, it kept coming so strong, I would get really caught in the meanness of it, in the unbearableness of it. I think it was just this emotion, ah, this is too much, I can't bear it. That's actually what the emotion was. And I could see the whole process, but there kept being the sense of me, of mind, in which I really can't bear it. And for a while, I just kept going on like that. I can't bear it. I can't bear it. And finally, I got really fascinated. What is the clinging here? I mean, I'm not clinging to that image. I wasn't clinging to the story. I wasn't, I wasn't really, after a while, I wasn't hating the emotion, but I wasn't holding on to it either. And I kept thinking, like, I'm really seeing the whole thing coming and going. What's the clinging that I'm not seeing? Because I know when I really see, oh, that's me, just in that awareness, it might still be there, but the whole texture of it changes. And this is something I've really been interested in a lot. So what I finally saw, I finally saw, was what the clinging to, when that emotion would come up, oh, this is unbearable, this is so intense, the sense of me, not the emotion itself, but just that sense of me, which is very subtle, but just that contraction is so, was so familiar, was so comfortable, that's actually what the clinging was to. Ah, me, it's totally unbearable, but me, you know, I'm home. And that was fascinating. Because since then I can just recognize so often this, this subtle sense of me that refers experience back to me. And that is just that little contraction of clinging keeps the whole cycle going until the clinging releases. So the question that then came up is not so much about how to understand this emotion, how to get rid of it, how to, how to fix it, how to purify my mind, But really, am I willing to be without self-referencing? Am I really willing to just, things arise, emotions, sights, sounds, thoughts, sensations, whatever, just to be so present that there's not even the tiniest referencing back to me? And that, it's not, not a choice I can just make in my mind, but starting to notice that clinging to that habit of self-referencing and the feeling at times of uh, disconcertion. No, I don't like to be without self-referencing. This is from a, not a Buddhist, but a kind of one of these new non-dual guys. Um, self-referencing is the mind's tendency to locate itself. So when it's realized that there's no self apart from the perceiving then the tendency to try to find oneself in any experience, insight, or concept ceases. What I'm talking about is a condition where the mind has no compulsive need to understand in terms of ideas or concepts or beliefs. A condition where you are no longer referencing the mind, your feelings, or emotions for security in any way. Just imagine that, a condition where you are no longer referencing the mind, thoughts, feelings, or emotions for security in any way. So immediate. Just what's arising. The sense of self is not some steady, unchanging thing that we have to get rid of. It simply arises in a moment of misperception, of clinging, and it vanishes when that misperception 
when that clinging vanishes, which of course it will in any given moment. So this self-referencing, trying to locate ourselves with thoughts, with moods, with feelings, with emotions, it's so familiar. We do it so automatically. And often we're suspicious of when we don't do it. But there's a phrase Ajahn Buddha Dasa uses. He uses it in another context, but I like it in this one. A volunteering for suffering. So do we want to volunteer for suffering? Then we can add on this whole sense of self-referencing. So I'll give you a simple example. And it, it, sometimes it pushes people's buttons a little bit, so that's good. Um, sometimes when you're sitting, I always, when I was in, in Burma one time, I was teaching, actually, and you start to get sick. Okay, that's already going too far. That's already making a concept. But this one time I was sitting and just noticing whatever was happening, and I was noticing tickle, 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 and just the different things, and then I would notice cough, cough, and then I was noticing heat, heat, and then tickle, tickle, and this went on. And you know how when you're deep in retreat, you really do stop referencing yourself. You just notice what's happening. You don't put it together into a story. So I was just noticing these different things, and after a day or so, Suddenly, they went, oh, I've got bronchitis. This is bronchitis. I recognize this. And immediately, there was this sense of referencing. This is what it is. This is my history. I've had bronchitis X amount of times in the last five years. I get really sick. I can't afford to get sick. When this retreat is over, I have all these things I have to do. And and total panic, total me, a lot of suffering. And I thought, wait a minute. That's a story. Just go back. Tickle, tickle. Cough, cough. That whole thing just completely fell away. Oh. Tickle, tickle. Cough, cough. It's just what it is. And then I started playing with it, the volunteering for suffering. I go, but maybe it really is bronchitis and I have to do And all of the emotions would come back. What am I going to do? I have to go to the doctor. Okay. I mean, my mind was a little bit malleable. I could play with it. But do you get a sense of what I mean? Often we can't play with it. That sense of, I'm going to jump on the description, I'm going to jump on the self-referencing, and once I'm on, there's no way off. You know, Volunteering for suffering. Are we willing to even explore the possibility of being without self-referencing? Then we end up not end up, but the way the Buddha described that. And I'll end with that. When he was talking to Bahia, this is really that state, not state, but the way of perceiving where there's no self apart from the perceiving. And the Buddha was talking to Bahia. He said, when in the seen is merely what is seen, in the heard is merely what is heard in the imagined and what is thought in the mind is only that, when in the cognized is merely what is cognized, then, Bahia, you will not be with that. When, Bahia, you are not with that, then you will not be in that. When, Bahia, you are, neither, you are not in that, then you will be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. Neither here nor there nor in between the two. When the seen is merely what is seen, just this is the end of suffering. That's not a steady state. That's in any particular moment. So thank you for listening to the Dhamma.
This talk was given by Carol Wilson at Forest Refuge on December 4, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.